This podcast is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is not an invitation to make an investment and should not be construed as advice. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of Investec Asset Management. Value of investments can fall as well as rise and losses may be made. It's that time of the year when the team at Investec Asset Management publish their annual investment views, and that's to share their outlook for the next 12 months. You can access all of these viewpoints by going to www.investecassetmanagement.com forward slash investment views 2019. Right now on the telephone is Philip Saunders, co-head of multi-asset growth at Investec Asset Management in London, speaking to us from Singapore. He's going to share his views for 2019. And Philip, I have a re- an excellent piece that you sent me a few days ago saying from tail wins to headwinds, a new market regime. And I'll just read one sentence that I pulled out. It says here, the bull market in everything under the extended quantitative easing regime is now giving way to an environment characterized by tighter monetary conditions and a process of price resetting. Global growth has peaked, you say, and is decelerating. It's quite a change from the last few years. It is indeed. And we've been through really what's been a remarkably long period in which monetary conditions have been extremely loose. We've been in that sort of post-global financial crisis sort of mode, a lot of resorting to unorthodox monetary policies in order to keep the show on the road. And the Fed began to normalise its strategy some time ago. But the impact of that, you know, didn't really break surface until this year, 2018, where we've seen a series of dominoes beginning to topple over, like initially Asian high yield, we then had uh, Argentina and uh, then Turkey. And progressively, we've seen areas that have been sensitive to tightening liquidity beginning to adjust to a new regime, which is a more normal regime. But after a long period where all you were doing was reaching for yield and pushing those kind of yields ever lower. So we're going through a phase now of significant adjustment. Okay, before we get on to some of the other themes in your piece, is it going to be a disruptive period because of this change and quantitative easing giving way to potentially quantitative tightening or already quantitative tightening? Is it going to be managed smoothly by market participants, do you think? Look, it's it's healthy for prices to adjust. Obviously, we prefer adjustments that are less sort of not particularly brutal. And but, you know, I think that these processes take time. It's a sort of process of discovery in a way. So repricing, obviously, in addition to shifting liquidity, the shifting liquidity environment, we now have uh, sort of really the revival of geopolitical concerns uh, in the form of very different American policy towards China. So that obviously adds a complicating factor. We haven't really had to worry about serious geopolitical risk for a very long time, of course. So now now that's going to become a feature that we're going to have to try and price. And then finally, of course, on the growth side, Chinese growth has probably been weaker than the official figures suggest this year. That's been impacting growth, obviously, outside the US. And now we're beginning to see the top in US growth. So the growth trajectory is one of peak and deceleration. And that, too, obviously, has implications for 
equity earnings and ultimately currency valuations. You mentioned China. You have a paragraph which is headed China in transition. US trade pressure is likely to speed up the reform process rather than slow it down, you point out. The reforms are broad-based, but of particular relevance to investors will be those related to the transformation of the economy, the shift from quantity to quality. That transformation has been picking up picking up a pace, actually, in 2018, I think. Yes, very much so. In fact, actually, reform momentum in China has, is, is, is pretty good. Uh, and the transition to a sort of you know, fundamentally different economic model uh, is clearly underway. I don't think the Chinese were anticipating sort of an unwinding of, uh, if you like, sort of what's been called Chimerica, i.e. this sort of uh, you know, close integration between the US and Chinese economies, uh, which has actually served China pretty well over the years, possibly too well. But I think that the natural response to a change in US policy is to get on with reforms, you know, open up and develop their financial markets, uh, improve capital productivity. And uh, there's every sign that uh, the impetus towards that uh, is uh, is increasing, not slowing down. And the economic transformation comes to an investment implication, which you say is as follows. A cyclical weakness sets up a long-term strategic opportunity. Any, any particular asset class, or do you just look at China rather as a whole? I think that, um, you know, actually, I think that as capital markets open up, then we will see um, exposure to Chinese bonds as well as equities become much more common in investors' portfolios. So uh, really the comment relates to, it's, it's across asset classes, and but I think the particular opportunity is probably going to be in equities, which is one of the cheapest markets in the world at the moment. And although we feel that we've got to see some kind of uh, flaw in terms of the deceleration in global growth rates, and obviously the growth rate in China, certainly from a valuation perspective, we're sort of getting in the zone where more longer term strategic thinking investors should be looking for opportunities to accumulate exposure, provided they can ride obviously a vol volatility in the short term. China's, of course, very much linked to the fortunes of commodities, and you call commodities a mixed bag. You say, in our view, slower growth and lower commodity intensity of demand, particularly in China, the biggest source of demand is likely to dominate performance. So it's all up to China again. Well, I mean, in the greater scheme of things, China is probably uh, the most important customer for, for a lot of key industrial commodities. And clearly, I think that uh, as the Chinese economy decelerates on a cyclical basis, that obviously reduces demand somewhat. Um, and of course, uh, as the Chinese economy modernizes, becomes cleaner and so forth, a lot of the infrastructure build out has actually happened, then the commodity intensity nature of Chinese demand will diminish or is already in the process of diminishing. So uh, uh, we're fairly cautious about um, industrial metals, and it's notable that the, um, the performance of industrial metals relative to precious metals uh, looks as if it's shifting. So, uh, so I think that, uh, you know, interestingly, gold is emerging as you know, a defensive asset potentially, whereas obviously industrial metals will tend to display cyclical characteristics. Moving on to interest rates and monetary conditions tightening. Very, very recently, of course, a spanner was thrown in the tightening works by Jay Powell because he said that he's, he's almost set a target uh, for the US interest rate uh, rising cycle. But nonetheless, that was uh, after you wrote this piece. And you say we expect rising evidence of cyclical inflationary pressures in the US to cause the Fed to continue on its current path to normalise policy, which could see US short term interest rates reach a cyclical peak of 3%. Is that still in place, given what uh, Mr. Powell has recently said? 
Yes, I think he's changed his language and essentially, but what he said uh, before and said now that uh, uh, the Fed are going to remain data dependent. And if the data justifies uh, further in increases in the federal funds rate, then that's probably what we will get with uh, and no amount of tweeting from President Trump is likely to actually change that. But I think people tend to focus too much on the uh, you know, headline uh, official interest rate numbers. You know, is it going to be another quarter, 25 basis points or 50 basis points? I think in the background, uh, the Fed is shrinking its balance sheet at uh, an increased rate now. Uh, and uh, that, I think, has interesting implications because uh, that obviously affects financial markets more directly. Um, and if you look at it in context of uh, issuance next year, um, U.S. Treasury and mortgage-backed security issuance is probably going to hit something like one and a half trillion dollars. And that's a big number. It is a big number. What does this mean for your attitude towards bonds? You say we continue to believe that the developed world remains in a st structural disinflationary regime, which would suggest that overshoots in longer term bond yields represent buying opportunities. Yes, and we, we firmly believe that in the sense that uh, we think that cyclical increases in inflation in the US are, are pretty temporary. The bigger picture structural forces are point to deleveraging, uh, obviously, uh, demographics are, are becoming less supportive. So the sustainable rate of growth is going to be lower. So it's not Trump's 4%. It's sort of more like 2% in the US, maybe even slightly lower than that. So we think that investors sh should uh, look to generate returns and diversification from the Treasury market, probably the long end of the Treasury market, and other similar markets, such as the Canadian government bond market, for example. You talk about differing paces of adjustment in credit markets. You'll have to explain this to me. You say the adjustment in the pricing of credit to reflect tighter liquidity conditions has also diverged. Explain. Yes. I mean, I think that the, what, what's been interesting this year is that uh, liquidity conditions in the US remained relatively loose. And so while credit spreads in the rest of the world were beginning to widen, obviously I mentioned that uh, Chinese high-yield credit spreads were the first to crack, if you like, you know, actually, it's taken quite a while for credit spreads to move meaningfully in the US, although more recently we've seen exactly that happening. So I think it, these are all aspects of this regime shift that's been going on in terms of the liquidity environment. OK, now on to equities, the all-important equity market. Our central case, your central case rather, for 2019 is that earnings will be negatively impacted by a synchronised slowing in global growth and that this is not yet fully discounted. Reading between the lines as a layman, in other words, stocks are still overvalued with the potential for more downside. We've seen a little bit of positioning recently with ups and downs and volatility, but the downside case seems to be where you're leaning in the short term. Yes, I mean, we're, we, we believe it's right to be uh, cautiously positioned. We recognise that outside the US equity market, valuations are improving quite significantly or have improved quite significantly. So we've got to, it's important to differentiate between US equities and, you know, for example, Asian equities, which are on undemanding valuations at the moment. However, uh, if uh, the US equity market was to weaken further in this sort of correction that's sort of begun to unfold, uh, then other markets are unlikely to be able to buck that trend. 
with all these asset classes doing different things and uh, changing the trend that's been entrenched for many, many years now, of course, currencies are going to be volatile. And you say investor positioning is strongly pro-dollar. And I think the dollar index went to 2018 high just a couple of days ago. And you say the dollar is overvalued, limiting further general upside. And after Mr. Powell's uh, words recently as well, perhaps that is already starting. The weakness, that is. No, absolutely. I mean, uh, obviously, there is a possibility that some of these um, developments happen sooner rather than later. I mean, exact timing is obviously always difficult. But uh, uh, it's just an observation that the dollar has been strong. Uh, investors have become incredibly sort of pro-dollar. And so, therefore, recent strength has been more sort of grinding strength rather than dramatic strength. So we believe that uh, as U.S. economic growth sort of weakens next year as fiscal support begins to sort of fade then then it's highly likely that dollar will start to correct might might have started already I can't have a conversation with you Philip without mentioning your love for the Japanese yen is it still in place Yes, we have this sort of long-term love affair. It's an unrequited love affair, as, as <laughs> because the Japanese yen has, you know, it has it it's not moved much against the dollar this year. Although this year is not finished, I, I, I hasten to note. But the yen, it's a very cheap currency. It tends to have reliable defensive characteristics. If next year is volatile and we see further downside in certain growth assets, then I suspect that uh, the yen will start to uh, finally appreciate. Philip, what about emerging market currencies and debt? When it comes to emerging market currencies, I'm, of course, uh, linked very much to the South African rand. And the view on the South African rand from people that I, I talk to is that any strength must be sold into. But what do you see for the whole basket and also, of course, the debt market? Well, I think that as far as liquidity conditions are concerned, I think that uh, conditions are going to continue to, to tighten somewhat. Uh, however, I think we're entering an environment where uh, having further pronounced dollar strength is is much less likely or becoming less likely. However, the growth environment is not particularly supportive. So although the dollar ceases to become as negative a factor for emerging market currencies and debt as it has been in 2018, I think that growth is still a potential negative. So I think it's going to be right to uh, tread fairly carefully and be selective and also take advantage of weakness. So it's not just about selling rallies. The final part of your presentation is an interesting way to end because the headline is decarbonisation and sustainability. We believe investors, you say, need to factor sustainable investing into their strategic thinking. I know that's been a theme at Investec Asset Management, building uh, building a team around this this type of investing. How important is it to you? I think, well, as we've said, that it is becoming increasingly important because uh, obviously the climate change clock is is ticking. Um, and there's more and more evidence that uh, there is an underlying response to that, even though U.S. policy at the higher level is, is, is being rolled back. We're also seeing investor behavior change. So uh, uh, clients have generally put increasing pressure on investment managers to, if you like, do the right thing. And the industry, I'm glad to say, is responding to that. And one of the key things is that uh, this transition is going to depend very crucially on 
private capital, because governments are heavily indebted at the moment, and i.e. for private capital to be directed to uh, support the energy transition, to support greater efficiency, and to favour companies that uh, are also doing the right thing. So I think we've reached a point of critical mass, and um, it's, it's noticeable that the pace of change is picking up. And if I were to pick on, if you know what, one key pivotal event, that would be the fact that, uh, well, it's not necessarily an event, it's the decline in solar and wind power pricing to the extent that it's competitive without subsidies. And I think that's a very critical development in terms of the energy transition. Obviously, the energy transition is central to uh, responding to climate change, global warming, and helping to, if you like, transition the world economy into uh, onto a more sustainable path. Final question from me, and this is off script, not in your presentation. I want to ask you if there's any possibility that given your view that global growth may start to slow down in 2019, is there a chance that the central banks like the US Federal Reserve might very quickly cut short the interest rate rising cycle, the shrinking of their balance sheets, and go back to where they were 2008-2009, i.e. very, very cheap money and very loose monetary policy with liquidity? I think that it may well be that central banks, including the Fed, you know, may have underestimated the economy's and market's ability to withstand what seem to be relatively modest shifts in, in, in interest rate policy. So, yes, I mean, I think that central banks will ultimately respond if global economic weakness becomes pronounced. We're already seeing response from, for example, the Chinese central bank. But by past comparison, the Chinese authorities have been relatively tentative because obviously they recognize that they want to transition the economy. And if you just simply resort to uh, looser, much looser monetary policy and stimulation of infrastructure and so forth, the usual levers, then that will certainly actually slow the process of transition down. So I think it's a delicate balancing act. So I, I think that growth would have to become very weak in order to initiate the kind of response we've seen historically. So I think that uh, it's more likely that policy will be eased somewhat, but uh, it will not be eased to support asset prices specifically. Philip, thank you very much for your time. Philip Saunders is co-head of multi-asset growth at Investec Asset Management in London. In South Africa, Investec Asset Management is an authorised financial services provider.